This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, July 22nd, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. This morning's scripture reading comes from uh, Acts chapter 6, beginning at uh, verse 8. <clears throat> and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedman, as it was called, and of the Cyrians and the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You may have a seat. Thank you for being here. We're going through Acts, and I'm going to pray and ask that God moves me out of the way so I don't mess it up. So if you bow with me, and we will go before Heavenly Father. Father in heaven, we praise you. We adore you. Jesus, we worship you. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your help in doing both of those things. Lord, you know that our hearts are prone to wander. And that is why we gather here to be reminded of who you are and to be reminded of reality. We walk through this life not always in a manner worthy of our calling, Father. Rather, we often have our minds set on the flesh and so realign our hearts and minds with your Spirit. Father, free us from slavery to our own preferences. Empty us from the power of our fleshly desires. Turn us from the allure of temptation, and do all of this by captivating us by the love of Christ. King Jesus, rule over us as the loving shepherd that you are. Admonish us if we are idle. Encourage us if we are weak. We thank you for your forgiving patience that you are committed to completing the work that you began. Pray we will be willing to be as patient with others as you are with us. Holy Spirit, only you can do the heart work that we need. You know that some of us find ourselves in a very deep valley this morning. Would you remind us of the help we have in you and where our help truly comes from and that the stars are always brighter the deeper the valley is. We pray this morning for our city, we pray for our county and our nation. Pray that you help us to remain faithful 
to be a city on a hill, to preach the word faithfully, even when it becomes difficult or even outlawed. Help us to be bold in our witness wherever we go, whether it be in our neighborhood, in our job, or elsewhere. Father, we are excited at the opportunity of purchasing this building, but we recognize it is just a building. But we pray that this opportunity will not be wasted, that we will through it build our faith, Lord, that you will build our commitment to one another, you will build our love for mission, and you will ultimately build a greater name for you in this place and beyond. And we thank you for the churches in this city and beyond, recognizing that we are not the only church preaching the gospel in this place. We pray for the newest church in town, High Point Church, that through their ministry, Lord, you will save more people. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Oikos Church who are struggling right now because the wife of one of their elders, Dave Emerson, his wife Heather, Lord, you know, had a stroke, and she may be coming back to you soon. So we pray for her healing, Lord, according to your will, and certainly for your comfort and peace for the Emerson family during this time. And as we study Acts this morning, Lord, this very old book, let us see it not just as myth or story, but truly as history of the early church and as our history. While there are only 28 chapters in this book, we know that the story of your church is still being written. And so we pray that you will let the chapter that is titled Restoration Road be spirit-filled and God-glorifying. Bless our time this morning. Speak to us by your Spirit, through your Word, and it is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, um, on the sermon card, which is probably in the back of your chair there, there's a list of sermons we go through, and this one says part 2, 6, 8 to 753. I wasn't sure where I was going to divide it, and the guys were reading the Scriptures, uh, at least the Dick Lee of the first service was worried he was going to have to read the whole of chapter 7. And I said, no, but we will read it, and I will read it next week, but I won't make everyone stand as I do. But I've decided to cut it off a little short and do this whole thing in two parts. Um, and I need you to understand that my hope is, as, as one of your pastors, the guy who gets to preach a lot, that my hope is not just to teach you and to bring you to maturity in Christ, which I think is the goal and should be the goal of all pastors, but it's also to teach you so that others might be taught that you might be able to open the Bible and when you read something that you have heard preached, that you'll be able to speak and, and teach from that in some sense. And so to that end, I want to give you a little bit of picture of how to have a framework to understand the book of Acts. Um, the book of Acts, as we've gone through it, records the spread of Christianity from Jerusalem to Rome. And Luke, who is a doctor, organizes his writings in six different parts with very clear divisions. And last week, whether you knew it or not, we finished part one. And at the end of August, we'll have finished part two. And each division is divided by a similar sounding verse. I'll tell you what the divisions are, but you'll just have to trust me because I doubt you'll be able to write them down that fast. But Acts 6, 7, Acts 9, 31... Acts 12.24, Acts 16.5, Acts 19.20, and then Acts 28.31. So there's six different divisions, and as I said, they're all marked by a similar sounding verse, and I'll read you the part, 
or end of part one and two so you understand. Acts 6 7, the first part we just finished, ends this way. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many priests became obedient to the faith. That's the end of part one. Part two, which ends at the end of chapter nine, sounds like this in verse 31. The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So you can see these six different markers talk about the growth of the church and how it spreads. And so the first part said it described the growth in Jerusalem. And the second part, which I read to you, described the growth in Judea and in Samaria. And if you read ahead to parts 3 and 4 and 5, you would see that those same sounding verses don't have geographic markers in them. All they will say is that the church increased and the church multiplied. And so you see it kind of unfolding as it goes. And then the last section, the last part, part 6, which is found in the last verse of the book of Acts, we have... Paul being described as teaching in Rome for two whole years. So put together, what you see is the unfolding of what Jesus told the apostles in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which was to go be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, which ultimately would be Rome. And so you have this progression, this unfolding of the story of redemption that is very well organized and represented in the book of Acts. Now, despite Jesus' commission or command to say, go, go be witnesses in Jerusalem, go be witnesses in Judea, the problem is that most of the apostles, if not all the apostles, actually stay in Jerusalem for a long time. In fact, they don't really leave Jerusalem themselves till about Acts 15. And that represents about 15 years of time. But different Christians, different disciples do move out. And we see that beginning in Acts chapter 7. We see God in many ways forcing the church out of Jerusalem to fulfill His mission to the ends of the earth. And He does it using one thing. Violent persecution. People start being killed for their faith arrested for their faith, imprisoned for their faith. And this is how the church moves, how God moves them into the world. And so last week we saw at the end of Acts chapter 6, at least the beginning of it, that marks kind of the final organization, if you will, of the church in Jerusalem to ensure its continued health, right? They're making sure the church is unified. They're taking care of each other's needs. They're making sure that the apostles are doing the job they should and the deacons are doing the job they should and the church increases and grows. And so it's being filled up to the point where it's going to start to overflow. And so Acts 6, verse 8, through Acts 7, verse 60, so that whole chunk begins this new chapter in the history of the church. And I would suggest it's somewhat of an unwelcome one because it's a painful one, but it's also a very necessary 
turning point in the story of redemption. And we see those kinds of turning points throughout history, even beyond the book of Acts. This section of Scripture is actually also a really important bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Many people will say, well, the Old Testament is one story, the New Testament is another, or the Old Testament God is different than the New Testament God, and I assure you it is one story told by the one same God for the glory of the one Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, in Luke 24, so Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, first volume, Luke 24, very end of his first volume of his gospel, is the story of Jesus, resurrected Jesus, but not shown himself to everyone yet Jesus, is walking along with two disciples who do not know who he is. They're on their way to a village called Emmaus. And as they walk, they are very sad. They are very disturbed because they've just seen Jesus die. And he hasn't risen from the dead, though he has. They don't know it. And so they're sad. And he's like, what are you so sad about? And they say, where have you been? Like, you're walking from Jerusalem. Like, shouldn't you know what happened to Jesus and all these things? And he tells them. And so Jesus, without revealing who he is, begins to tell them that this was all supposed to happen. In fact, what it says in Luke 24 is that beginning with Moses, which would be the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Beginning with Moses, the beginning of the Bible, and all the prophets would have been the rest of the Scriptures. He interpreted to them all the Scriptures, the things concerning Himself. Now, the Scriptures are pretty silent about exactly what Jesus taught. Like, that must have been the most incredible history lesson ever, but it doesn't tell us what it is and what He exactly said. But I believe what He said is likely very similar to what Stephen preaches in Acts chapter 7. Because Acts chapter 7 is the whole story of God from many ways the beginning to Jesus. Stephen preaches what is his first and final sermon, and it's the longest sermon recorded by a disciple in the New Testament. And I'll talk about that next week. But something I think we skip over too quickly, before we study what is the first defense of Christianity, I'd like to take a look at the first defender of Christianity, the first deacon the first apologist, the first martyr, the first person killed for faith in Jesus Christ, Stephen. Now, in the past, I've explained the difference between descriptive and prescriptive texts as you read Scripture, and that the book of Acts is full of a lot of descriptive texts, texts that provide information and not actual clear instruction. As we examine the life of Stephen, we're not going to find commands like go and do likewise. And what that does is it, I think, makes it tempting for us to skip over or maybe even dismiss Stephen's example as unique, as extraordinary, as uncommon, never to be repeated. And without doubt, his experience is unique in the sense that it came in a specific time and place, and there's not going to be another first martyr, if you will, like there was for Stephen, but I would argue that even though many of us will probably not face martyrdom for our faith, 
We may not even be arrested for our faith. Every one of us is commanded elsewhere in Scripture to be ready to defend our faith and even suffer for it, should that day come. Peter writes in his first epistle, now, 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ as the Lord, or Christ the Lord as holy. Always, big word, being prepared to make a defense to anyone. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And this is what Stephen experiences. He suffers for making a defense. He's reviled for making a defense. He does good and yet is charged with doing evil. And the question I'd like us to consider is exactly what made Stephen ready to serve Jesus? What made him ready to defend Jesus? What made him ready to die for Jesus? Now, we were introduced to Stephen last week when we saw the apostles lay hands on him, as we do with our deacons and our elders. And they appointed him to service along with six other guys to make sure that the widows were fed in the church. And last week we shared that even without office or title or official position, that every Christian is a servant in Christ, through Christ, for Christ. That no Christian is less than a servant, but I would argue that all Christians are definitely more than a servant. When someone is saved by Jesus... The Bible tells us that they are given gifts from the Holy Spirit. Paul writes in Romans 12 about the uniqueness of these gifts and the diversity and beauty that exists in the church. He says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy and cheerfulness with cheerfulness. And so Stephen is first and foremost appointed to a special office, but that role doesn't preclude him from other ministry. What I mean, he doesn't hide behind, well, I've put my time in with the church and I've kind of punched my Christian time card and I'm doing my service, therefore there's no other ministry for me to do. Stephen has a unique gift. And his gift is that of an apologist, perhaps that as a preacher. That said, as he serves the needs of the church and he fulfills these responsibilities he has, he goes out and he fulfills the Great Commission using his gifts. And I think sometimes when we see those kinds of gifts, 
we begin to go, well, I don't have that gift, so therefore I won't do that ministry. And so there's this tension that I want us to avoid. One is not checking the box of service, and the other is not checking the box of giftedness. And what I mean by that, everyone, I believe, is gifted and given a specific ministry to fulfill in accord with their gifts. We don't all understand what our gifts are. Some of us are still, you know, never even asked that question. And some are still trying to figure that out. That which gives us passion. That's what God built us for. The thing that, that energizes us and not hard work and that I'm good at doing. At the same time, and I think in the same way, just as we are all called servants, that every Christian is a servant, I would argue in some sense, every Christian is a teacher. Every Christian is an apologist. Every Christian is an evangelist. Like there are those without doubt that are more gifted in teaching. It comes easier for them. They're skilled at it. There are those who uh, are evangelists very naturally, right? That gives them energy. They can't help but share the gospel with every single person they meet. There are those whom service is a gift. It's not something they're just doing because they're appointed to. It's something they desire to do. They spend hours doing it. They love to serve. Those who are generous, it's easy for them to give. And others of us, it's more difficult. That is true. But all Christians are called to be generous. All Christians are called to serve. All Christians are called to be apologists and evangelists. And even if Stephen is functioning here in his gifts, we are all equipped to do what he does. The only question is, are we willing? Or maybe better yet, are we ready? And how do you get so? Well, for his part, the text says that Stephen is spending his time among the people, probably entering into the synagogues as Paul will later do in his ministry, the beginning of it. And he's engaging in conversations about Yeshua, right? The Messiah. Jesus. He's teaching about Jesus. Defending Jesus. Trying to prove that He is the Messiah. And as He does, there's different groups from three different synagogues who get rather upset with Him. That He is claiming that Jesus is the Messiah. And they begin to argue with Him and dispute with Him and debate Him. One group, it says, is from the region of Cilicia. Cilicia is a region which the capital is Tarsus. And Tarsus is the city that a man named Saul comes from. Saul, who later is the Apostle Paul. And so we know that Saul is there. Saul is likely one of the guys debating and arguing and disputing. And he is now, as the Apostle Paul, probably telling Luke the story of Stephen. We wonder, where did we get this? How, how do they know the whole sermon? Well, Paul was there, listening, ready to stone him. And what we see is that these men, as they're disputing, even Paul himself, cannot withstand the wisdom and spirit of Stephen, it says. And so they resort to more sinister methods, just as they did with Jesus. They bring false witnesses who come with false charges, resulting in his arrest. They have to bring false charges because there's nothing bad to say about Stephen. As he stands before the same council that killed Jesus, the witnesses bring charges of blasphemy. Blasphemy against God himself, blasphemy against God's law, and blasphemy against God's temple. 
And you need to understand, there's pretty much no worse charge you can bring against a Jew at that time. Like that's the full scope of it. You have blaspheming God, blaspheming His law, blaspheming the temple. And those charges all carry a death sentence. And yet Stephen faces them with boldness. And we go, how, how does a guy face death without being filled with fear? Well, that a moment of anxiety, it seems, at least not one recorded. And I would argue it's because Stephen was a man who was filled with something else. He's a man who was filled with something else. Now, as you read the book of Acts, we see that Luke, the writer, appears to be a fan of the word fullness. And that word, or some variation of it, is very frequent throughout the book of Acts. Filled, full. Now, the word full means to abound in, right? To be full of. To be wholly occupied with. To be completely under the influence of or affected by whatever it is you are full of. Whatever has filled you, it governs you. It shapes you. It directs you. It completely influences you. Whatever you're filled with is the supreme influencer in your life and in your decision making and in your perspective and in your attitude. So when Christ saves someone, there's not just merely a behavioral change, right? There's a deep heart change. The Old Testament describes it as your old heart of stone is torn out and a new heart of flesh is put in that beats after God. Apart from Christ, we are, as many say, full of ourselves. And I meet that in the most theological sense, not just in the clever sense. We are full of ourselves. We are wholly occupied with our own goals. We are completely under the influence of our own desires apart from Christ. Someone who is totally full of themselves is someone who is ultimately full of pride and self-rule and is only self-concerned and conceited. That doesn't mean they do the worst things ever. It doesn't mean that anyone who is full of pride becomes Adolf Hitler or whatever the worst person you can think of. It means that all that they do, all that influences them, all the decisions is governed by themselves. Their own desires, their own goals. And while the world often calls this kind of person a narcissist, I'm sure you've heard that term before, the Bible calls this kind of person a natural man, a lost man, an unrepentant man. So those who are in Christ are spiritual, spiritual men, women, because we have been emptied of something and filled with something else. The Bible says that we have been emptied of unrighteousness and filled with righteousness in Christ. We have been emptied of sinful desire and filled with godly desire. We have been emptied of meaninglessness and filled with purpose. That's the distinguishing mark of a Christian. That you've been emptied 
of something and filled with something. And all of this comes through God's Spirit in us if God's Spirit is in us. So what makes Stephen ready? What makes him prepared? The Bible says, and if you highlight it, you'd be surprised how many times it appears in just these 10 verses. Stephen is full of God's Spirit. Stephen is full of God's Spirit. This was actually one of the qualifications that the apostles came to the church and said, hey, we need seven guys. We need them to be full of the Spirit. And the church found these seven guys, including Stephen, and described them as being full of the Spirit. And so here's the question. How do you know someone's full of the Spirit? That's a very loaded phrase in today's church. I've literally had people, when we were at Damascus Road Church years ago, after a service, a woman came up to me and she said, you know, this was great, except your music's not Spirit-filled. I went, I don't think I know what you mean by that. She knew what she meant. I didn't know what she meant. I had an idea of what she meant. But when you throw out this idea of being full of the Spirit in today's church, depending on the kind of people, movement, denomination, group you're speaking with, they may have many different definitions and many different understandings. And not all of them are going to be good. So when we say full of the Spirit, what do we need? How do we know if someone's full of the Spirit? Well, if we just take the book of Acts where we see this happening, even up to this point, there are certain instances where people are filled with the Spirit or full of the Spirit. Several times up to this point have happened, Acts 2.4, Acts 4.8, Acts 4.34. And in those moments, the filling of the Spirit was followed by the proclamation of God's Word. Now this is much different than the fillings that we may find on YouTube. Or if you've been in many charismatic circles, you might have experienced at some of those churches. Where the filling of the Spirit or being full of the Spirit is more of a reference to uh, some kind of experience, some kind of feeling, some kind of emotionally driven, heavenly experience. Biblically, it seems, not that tickles and tingles are all wrong and never from the Spirit, but it is to say that biblically, it seems, the primary indication of whether someone is full of God's Spirit is whether they're actually full of God's Word. Now, as you're looking for someone, as they are looking for someone, who are the full of... How do we know that? It's not who is rolling in the aisles. It's not who is speaking in tongues louder than anybody else, which was certainly a problem in the church of Corinth. My guess is they're looking for someone who's full of God's Word, someone who is devoted to God's Word, studying God's Word, meditating on God's Word, speaking God's Word, sharing God's Word, delighting in God's Word, never not talking about God's Word. Being filled with the Spirit is certainly ha- is something that happens to us passively in some sense, but what we also see in Scripture, that it's something that we can actively participate in. Let me prove it. Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, writes this. Look carefully then how you walk, he says. 
Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And then he says this, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Paul commands us, implores us, tells us to be filled. Meaning, we have some responsibility or opportunity to do something. That being full of the Spirit is not exclusively a passive thing. He seems to indicate that those who are full of Spirit also respond a particular way. It says, be filled with the Spirit. And then it says, verb, addressing, right? Addressing one another with psalms, songs about God, words about God. And even talks about being humble and submissive to one another as a response to being full of the Spirit. He contrasts this idea of getting drunk with being filled. And it seems like a strange metaphor to use. Perhaps his audience in Ephesus was very familiar with drink. Because it seems like they understood exactly what he meant. So perhaps I can help you. We know, this is not, you know, super science, getting drunk requires you drink a lot. Okay? But instead of devoting ourselves to actual drink, instead of indulging in the flesh and getting drunk, Paul commends us to devote ourselves to drinking deeply of God's Spirit. Indulge in God's Spirit. Well, how do we do that? Well, I would argue don't work yourself up in some spiritual fervor, emotional thing to try and create an experience so that you can feel like God is doing something because you're feeling tingles in your head. The Bible is actually really clear. In Romans 8, Paul says it this way, beginning in verse 5. For those who are according to their flesh set their minds. There's a mind involved. It's not disconnected to thought set their minds on the things in the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit." if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So, drinking up the Spirit, which I know is a weird phrase to think about, but being filled with the Spirit, drinking up the Spirit, has something to do with setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. And 
What are the things of the Spirit? Well, if, as Jesus taught, the Spirit was coming to help His disciples remember everything Jesus had taught, then setting our mind on the things of the Spirit means eagerly and actively and intentionally giving our attention to Scripture and teaching of Jesus and His apostles. It's drinking deeply of His Word. It's being filled up with His Word. It's being devoted to His Word. And the truth is, we are devoted to many things in our our lives. If I ask you to, to just describe, give me the five things that you're most devoted to in your lives. We would name many good things. But my fear is that few of us would name the Word of God. That is something I'm devoted to. That is something I feast on. That is something I drink more than anything else. Now, it's important to remember that the Holy Spirit is not a force, right? It's like the force in Star Wars. He's a person. He's a person we can talk to. He's a person that we can come to. He's a person that is given to us to lead us and to teach us and to comfort us and to help us and to fill us. And when we are full of God's Spirit, as Stephen is, we find ourselves ready. Ready to fulfill God's mission, God's way. And if Stephen, a man full of the Spirit, is an example, then we see what it looks like as that plays out. We see that he is full of God's wisdom, and he is full of God's grace, and he is full of God's power, and he is full of God's love. This is how Stephen is described if you read Acts 1-15. through He's described as being full of wisdom, described as being full of grace and full of power and full of love. So let me just touch on those briefly. When you are full of God's Spirit, you are full of God's wisdom. Simply, wisdom is the application of truth, of God's Word, which is truth, to our lives. To be wise is to have real answers to real problems. To be wise is to not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and cultural pressure that comes in the world. We are told that Stephen's opponents could not withstand the wisdom he was speaking. Gosh, what was he saying? Well, if his sermon is any indication as we read chapter 7 and we'll focus on it next week, It's not full of worldly philosophy. It's not full of clever speech. It's not full of anything but God's Word. He tells the story of God beginning with Abraham leading to Jesus. Simple, not clever, direct, not hidden proclamation of God's Word. That's wisdom. The reason he is basically so successful, if you will, the reason why they can't withstand his speaking is told to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says this, we have, not, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. When you are full of the Spirit, you have Wisdom. Wisdom not just to deal with the problems in your life. Wisdom to even understand the problems of others. 
Wisdom to understand why the world the way it is. Wisdom to understand where we come from, why we are here, what is right, what is wrong, and where we're headed. Wisdom. The questions that every person in this world is asking and seeking answers to and not finding them because they're looking everywhere but God's Word. So it says here, we are given the Spirit so that we might have understanding of the things freely given to us by God. Who doesn't want understanding? It says, and if we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person, the person who does not devote themselves and feast on the Word of God, but feasts on all the words of the world. The person who is taught tossed to and fro by every change and every popular opinion. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly. They are foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. God's wisdom confounds the world. Even those who say they know God. You realize the people that Stephen is speaking to are men who pride themselves on knowing God's Word. But in truth, they know it not at all because they do not have the Spirit of God. Just because you can spout off Bible verses does not mean you know God and His Word. You might know His Word, but you don't know the Spirit of God that actually teaches the Word and brings the true wisdom and understanding. We also see that when we are full of God's Spirit, we are full of God's grace. This is awesomely convicting. Stephen is not out there picking fights and quarreling. One of the things that qualified him as a servant in the beginning was that his reputation with outsiders was good. Stephen is a man that is full of grace. Not just full of the grace of Christ, but one who is actually characterized by graciousness towards those who don't deserve it. And so ask yourself this question. Does that describe you? It's easy to be gracious and kind to those who are easy to be gracious and kind to, to those who might be kind to you, to your friends or or your family, but what about your enemies? What about your opponents in the world, whether real or imagined? How easy is it for you to show grace and kindness to them? I hate social media. I try really hard to only post verses and quotes from people smarter than me on social media because it seems like when you post anything else, you just get destroyed. I've seen more conflict on social media in the last five years than I probably saw in the previous 30 plus years of my life. It's incredible. And I'm sure there are fantastic things that are accomplished by God through social media, but I would say that one thing that social media reveals Though I think in many ways, we don't know what kind of impact it's having in our culture. But what I do see is this. It reveals there's a huge lack of grace that exists in the world, even in Christians. Stephen is being falsely accused of some horrible crimes. The worst that a Jew can be accused of. And yet he viewed his enemies in a particular way because we see in Acts 6.15 that as they are accusing him falsely, telling him he's blaspheming his God, the law, and the temple, it says 
He has the face of an angel. Is that what it looks like when you get accused? Falsely? Called names? He doesn't have a face of anger. He doesn't have a face of pride. He doesn't have a face of anything but that of an angel. That's powerful. And that's only possible to have that level of grace, someone who is full of God's Spirit. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy, his last letter to his favorite pastor, he said, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been captured by him to do his will. God's Spirit, as we become devoted to his word and he fills us up, I would argue, makes us more concerned with the soul of the questioner or the opponent than it does with the solution or the answer to the question. We're more concerned with the heart. So God's Spirit, as we are full of it, fills us with His wisdom, fills us with His grace, and fills us with His power. It says Stephen is full of power. The text says that he worked great wonders and signs among the people. We're not told what they were. We can assume they were likely similar to the apostles' miracles of healing and Jesus' miracles of healing. When we are full of God's Spirit, it seems that we are full of God's power with the ability to do incredible things. Ephesians 3.20 reminds us now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. There's nothing great and powerful about us. There's a power within us that it can accomplish anything. And without question, Stephen did some pretty extraordinary things. But the reason why they were so extraordinary, the reason why even his sermon and the way he apologizes or defends Christianity is so extraordinary, it's because Stephen himself is rather ordinary. We don't hear about Stephen, the grand, educated, amazing student of philosophy or Bible knowledge. We don't hear about that. We don't know who he was before or really after this time. All we know is he served tables and he was full of the Spirit. This reminded me of um, the book of Judges. If you're not familiar with the book of Judges, you study it. It's amazing and also very disturbing. That's why it's so awesome. The book of Judges takes place after Joshua has conquered the promised land and when he dies, there's no leadership left. And so Israel, basically, everyone does what's right in their own eyes, and they always fall into sin. They fall into sin. God brings in a nation to spank them. They cry out to God. God raises up a leader, a judge, to basically save them. And then it starts over again. And it goes through the cycles of judges over and over again. And you've probably heard of some of the grand judges like Samson, the womanizing meathead who basically destroyed the Philistines. You've probably heard of Gideon, right? But there's others you probably haven't heard of. Some only get one verse. And my favorite is in Judges 3.31, a man named Shamgar. 
great name for a dog, but a great name for a great man that you've never heard of. And Judges 3.31 says this. He gets one verse. This is after him, the previous judge, was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad and also saved Israel. Shamgar. He's a farmer with a cattle prod and he killed 600 Philistines with it. That's an extraordinary thing, but Shamgar was a very ordinary person. And when a man or woman is full of God's Spirit, they're full of God's power, and they can do some amazing things. We don't need some amazing gifted teachers and preachers and servants and people that are like super Christians everywhere. Actually, we just need ordinary Shamgars in our church. We need a church full of Shamgars, of people who are trusting that who they are right now, what they have right now can be used for God right now. Sham guards don't just wait for someone to step up. They don't make excuses about what they don't have. They don't dwell on what they won't be able to accomplish because they're not thinking about themselves. They ask, why not God? What's possible, God? And when it seems ridiculous, like battling 600 Philistines with a cattle prod, they just take what they have and trust that God's going to supply whatever is missing. A church full of Shamgars or a church full of Stevens is not a church full of the able or the strong or the amazing. It's actually a church full of the very ordinary, weak, and willing. That's what we need. Men and women are full of God's Spirit and therefore full of God's power. People go, wow, that's just an ordinary church and look what God did through them so that He is getting the glory and not us. And that's what happens here. But finally, and most powerfully, and honestly, I think most convicting for me personally, is that when we're full of God's Spirit, yes, we're full of God's wisdom, and we are full of God's grace, and we are full of God's power even. But what we see is that when you are truly full of God's Spirit, more than anything, you're full of God's love. What was most extraordinary about Stephen is not his sermon, though it's pretty good. It wasn't the signs and wonders he did. It's the final words he spoke before he died. And if you look ahead in chapter 7, verses 59 and 60, here are his last words before he died. It says, as they were stoning Stephen. So they're throwing rocks at him. He's being hit and bloodied and dying. He called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You want to know what it looks like for someone to be full of God's spirit? Someone who possesses an incredible amount of love, enough love to forgive his enemies who are killing them in that moment. That's, a, that's an otherworldly kind of love. That's a love that I cannot produce. That's a love that you cannot produce. That's a love that comes from God's Spirit. Love. Love enough to love our enemies. Love enough to pray for those who persecute us. It follows that if Wisdom and power and grace and love are the results of being full of God's Spirit. 
then filling ourselves with anything else or anything less is going to result in a lack of wisdom and a lack of grace or kindness and a lack of strength and a lack of love. Does that describe you? I'm confused about what to do, this or that. I'm feeling like I'm unkind. I am not gracious to anybody, especially not my opponents. I'm weak. I feel like I can't accomplish the things God has given me to do. Perhaps you're depending too much on yourself. I'm unloving and I'm unwilling to forgive and I'd rather sit on resentment and hold on to bitterness. I would argue that you have a spiritual problem, a Holy Spirit problem, that you have filled your life with something else. And I would suggest that you can fill your lives with lots of things that are actually good, but not God. Many of us have filled our lives. We go, the most important thing for us is to our jobs. And what happens when that job gets taken away? Or the most important things in our life is our success. Or what if you're not as successful as you thought or as prosperous as you hope to be? Or many of us filled our lives and go, the, most, the governing influence, the biggest thing that I am most full of is my family. And what happens when you sit with that teenager and that teenager is telling you like, you know what, you make my life miserable. Then what? We must fill ourselves with the Spirit of God through His Word that we might have the wisdom and the grace and the strength and the love to actually live this life. Now, what made Stephen ready to die for Jesus? Quite simply, he was willing to live for Him. And we cannot live with Him, as I've said, until we are full of His Spirit. And we cannot be full of His Spirit until we first become empty. And so we must ask the Lord to help empty us of our worldliness and empty us of our self-rule and empty of us of all vanity. And we will not be able to do that until we see that Jesus emptied Himself of all of His glory and filled Himself up with our sin so that we might empty ourselves and be empty of our sin and be filled up with His glory and love. That's love. Someone willing to do that for his own creation. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 15. Actually, at least 2 Corinthians 5, 14-15. For the love of Christ controls us. What controls you? The love of What? Fill in the blank. The love of my job. The love of my success. The love of my family. Like The love of Christ is supposed to control us. And it's supposed to control us because we have a certain belief. That's what Paul says. It controls us because we have concluded this, that Jesus died. And therefore, all have died. And He died for all, but those who live might no longer live for themselves but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. We cannot be full of the Spirit unless we have been given the Spirit. And we cannot be given the Spirit unless we repent of our sin and put our faith in the Lord Jesus. Did you know 1 Corinthians 12.3 says no one can say Jesus is Lord and Savior but by the Spirit. 
And when you declare Jesus as Lord, be careful. That's just not some flippant title. He's Lord. He's King. He owns it all. He rules. He guides. And He protects. And He provides. And He loves. That means He is Lord. Please hear me. The heart of this message is not, be Stephen. Let's pray. With all the things that you can fill your mind and your time and your life with, the heart of the message is really simple. Fill yourself with God's Word. Feast. Like everyone has to eat, right? Feast on God's Spirit. Devote yourself to drinking deeply of Jesus so that you might be ready given the opportunity to be wise and to be gracious and to be powerful and to be loving like Stephen. Paul tells his favorite pastor in his last letter, fan into flame the